This message first aired on the radio on October 10, 2003. We've been taking up an overview of the scriptures, wherein we are breaking it into the various dispensations, and we're in the fifth dispensation, the dispensation of law. And if you wonder what a dispensation is, I know I have a few people that hear snatches of the program, five minutes here, ten minutes there, while they're in their cars and so forth, and they say, I keep hearing this word dispensation, and I don't know what it means. Well, it's a Bible word. It literally is a compound word, meaning house rule or house order. It is our word that we base the word economy on, uh, oikonomia, and that comes from the word for house, uh, oika, and it comes from the root word base for rule or law. And so you'll see some arguments about that, but I'm giving you really the philology of the word uh, almost uh, more than the etymology. And it's a Bible word, the word dispensation, used in the King James Version to translate the word economia. And specifically, one was given to the Apostle Paul. And if one was given to the Apostle Paul, then whatever it was before him was changed. And then he writes about one that's to come. And so we have at least three dispensations just by the fact that one was given to Paul, and he mentioned that there was one coming after him house orders of God. And as we look at the scripture, we try to break out crisis moments or crisis time periods where God changes a dispensation. Now, there might be some who would say that the dispensation of law ends when Israel goes into captivity. And then maybe they would say there's a dispensation of captivity. Well, I don't think that that's really the case. I think that the dispensation of law continued until the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled it. But we can talk about those things, and we can have honest disputes as we study the Scripture about what is or isn't a dispensation of God. But one thing we can't argue about is whether there are any. There are some. We find that when we cut the Word of God straight, which is commended to us, in fact, the Scripture uses the word for walking straight and cutting straight in very similar terms. We are to cut the Word of God straightly. We are to walk straightly. The Word of God is to be cut straightly in order that we can walk straightly. If you adhere to the Word of God and if you commit yourself to the Word of God, God will straighten your steps. He'll straighten your steps. But first you have to cut the Word of God straightly. And so we believe that dividing the Scripture or cutting it straight has to do with looking at the differences, being able to distinguish the differences as well as the similar things. So we aggregate them together to summarize, and we distinguish that which is different in order to see the distinctives in the Word of God. And all of these things are commended and commanded in Scripture. And who would know more about the importance of cutting something straight than a tent maker, where the entire success of his project and the labor of his hands depends upon a good, solid, straight cut of material that's not that easy to cut, the tent material. So the Apostle Paul who was a tent maker, was given to make the house of God. That was part of the dispensation. He was to reveal concerning the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and support of the truth, the church, which is the body of Christ. And so it's curious, it's interesting, it's marvelous how God brings to pass all these marvelous things, all these circumstances, where he takes Saul of Tarsus, who is a tent maker by trade, and he makes him the one who gives us the scriptures about the whole body being fitted and joined together 
And he's the one that tells us to cut the Word of God straightly. So when we do that, when we cut the Word of God straight, and when we look into it, we enjoy the Bible. And one of the one of the horrible things that somehow has become contemporary upon Christians is that the Scripture is something I have to read or something I ought to read, rather than something that's actually enjoyed. And those of you who have been with us through this study realize that we believe that the Scriptures are quite enjoyable in the native form in which they're given to us, but if somebody beats it or twists it or cooks it or whatever it is, and people do all kinds of despot to the Word of God, just as they did to the man in the wilderness, instead of tasting like honey, it tastes like fresh oil. And there's a big difference between the taste of honey and the taste of fresh oil, even though from a distance they might look a little bit similar. When you have a little honey wafer, that's great, but I don't know anybody that eats oil wafers. So that's our purpose, and our purpose in doing that is that people will enjoy the Scriptures, and we are trying to do that. But we also realize that the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And there's nothing else that is the power of God except the Word of God. There's nothing else that's the power of God. You say, now, well, what is the power of God? Well, first of all, the power of God is that which delivers you from the penalty due your sins. The power of God is that marvelous working that God does when he finds you. And he will find you. God is looking. He's hunting. He's searching. The Lord Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He leaves the 99, and he goes after the one that strays. You say, well, who's the one that strays? The Bible says all of we like sheep go astray. And when a sheep goes astray, he's not looking for the shepherd. He's straying from the shepherd. But the good shepherd goes out looking for the sheep. I don't think much of seeker churches. I've heard this new phrase, seeker churches. It's a way to build some kind of dynasty, some kind of human organization. Seekers. Well, there's none that seeks after God, so you don't really have any audience there, certainly not among lost people. Among the saved, of course, the saved have a new nature, and they do desire the Word of God. I don't think much of churches that seek after the saved. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, let me further say this about the Lord. He seeks until he finds. He's persistent. And the power of God is still the Word of God, and it's the power to save you from the penalty due your sins. It's the Word of God. It has power to save. It has power to overcome sin in the life. And you know what I mean about the sin in your life. Can't miss it. There it is. And uh, all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put you back together again. But God Almighty, who designed you for his own purpose, can forgive you from your sins, and despite the failure that you are, he can use you and sanctify you for his own purposes because he has power. So there's power to save from the penalty of sin. There's power to save from the hold that sin has on us. Today I'm not rejoicing in the demise, the moral demise, for example, that Rush Limbaugh suffered, but it just goes to show you that great worldly success, certainly uh, capability, for example, on the radio, intelligent man, huge amount of money, None of that goes to save from the power of sin or the hold that sin has. And you may say, well, addiction is addiction. Addiction is sin. All sin is addictive. That particular sin where we become adhered to the effect of a certain drug is a well-known sin. 
that's the sin uh, translated in the Bible in one place, witchcraft, uh, translated witchcraft, but comes from the word pharmakia. And uh, it's a sin. It's a work of the flesh, Galatians 5, verse 20. Well, so God will also save you from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and finally you'll get a resurrection body, sin apart, and so there won't even be any presence of sin. He has power, and the power of God is the Word of God, not just in any kind of general way, but in a very specific way. It's a power of God to you specifically. In fact, it comes this way. It's the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So the Lord Jesus Christ went that way of the cross. He shed his blood so that his power might be visited upon us, power to save. So where is that power? So we're looking at the life of Elijah as we're dealing in the dispensation of law. And we've broken it, you may remember, into four parts, which we might say are after great leaders in Israel. The four parts, the birth of Israel, we focused on Moses. In Joshua, the second part, the height of Israel, actually the maturity and zenith of Israel, where we focused on David and then Solomon. And now we're looking at the demise of Israel, where we're focusing on Elijah and the one that follows him, Elisha, as Israel goes into captivity. So that will be Israel's demise. And then we'll find that really it's the Israel being set aside, and we will focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, of course, in that session. So we're taking our time. We've been spending perhaps six weeks going through this particular dispensation. That's longer than we thought, but it's enjoyable, and I'm having a good time. I don't. I know the show is not necessarily just for me to have a good time. I want you to know if it's boasting, well, then I'm boasting. But I enjoy the Scriptures. I do. I enjoy them. I would rather enjoy the Scriptures than anything else. And God gives us the Scriptures to enjoy. And they're not boring, and it's not dull. And if the Scriptures are boring and dull to you, if preaching is boring and dull to you, you need to question yourself whether you're paying any attention to it or huh, you need to question the preachers. Maybe you're listening to one of these 450 prophets of Baal that were going on during the days of Elijah. But now Elijah thinks he's the only one left. We remember that. And he wasn't quite right about that. He wasn't the only one left. At least that God wasn't going to leave him as the only one left because he said, I still have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal or kissed him. So these fellows are there. They need to be instructed. They need to be encouraged. And then God gives Elijah his last work to do. And you remember what his last work was, don't you, if you've been with us. He was to anoint a king for Syria, surprisingly. And this signals that God actually is going to turn to the Gentiles. And he, God will turn to the Gentiles. Now, he won't turn to the Syrians. He'll bring in Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, but the Syrians precede him. But God is going to turn the kingdom over to the Gentiles. That's the penalty he brings in for Israel's unfaithfulness. So one of the things Elijah is supposed to do is anoint a king over Syria, and that king is not going to be Ben-Hadad, which means Ben-Hadad has to leave the scene because the king of Israel is going to be Hazael that Elijah anoints and he's also going to anoint a new king in Ahab's place who is Jehu the son of Nimshi and Jehu is going to replace Ahab and he's going to have a rather colorful career as he brings down Jezebel 
throw her down. And that's going to be Jehu, the son of Nimshi. And then he's also, Elijah is also given to replace himself and to anoint Elisha, a prophet in his place. And that's what he does. We left off yesterday that he cast his mantle to Elisha, and Elisha understood that what that meant and slaughtered all of his oxen and cooked them on the implements that oxen pulled and cooked himself up that and went after Elijah and ministered to him. And now we have the problem of Ben-Hadad. And you remember that Ben-Hadad came in and demanded complete capitulation by Ahab, and even this coward Ahab had the gumption to at least turn to the elders of Israel and did not completely capitulate as the elders commanded to him. And then God said, sent a prophet to Ahab. And the prophet said, Have you seen all this great multitude, that is the multitude of the Syrians, who were Ben-Hadad boasted about, and said, I've got men like dust. And he said that gods do so to me and more also, the dust of Samaria doesn't suffice for handfuls for all the people that follow me. And in other words, you could take handfuls of dust in Samaria, one handful for each guy, and you'd run out of dust before you would run out of my guys. I have so many. And the king sent back a cautious answer, and I I think it's a good one, actually, Ahab sent back. He sent back to Ben-Hadad, let him that girds on his harness boast himself as he that puts it off. In other words, don't boast about a job you haven't finished that you're going to finish as if you've already finished it. Wait till you're done with the job and then boast about it. How many times do we see people not following that advice? Especially, for example, in sport, you'll see it where guys will boast about what they're going to do to another team, and and then they come away having embarrassed themselves as often as not. Well, God sends a prophet to Ahab, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, Have you seen this great multitude? I will deliver it into thy hands this day, and you will know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? Whose hand is going to destroy Ben-Hadad, this vicious and humongous, huge enemy from Syria, who is come upon us with all of his men? And the Lord answers through the prophet, Even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. And Ahab said, Who shall order the battle? And the prophet answers in behalf of the Lord, You. Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the prophets, and they were 232. And after he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel, now he's numbering the children of Israel who are greatly reduced. These are now the men capable of war, and they are 7,000. That's who's left, the 7,000 that God told, this is the force, this is the army. And remember now, these are the 7,000 that were referenced to Elijah, that I yet have 7,000. And you remember we looked at the book of Romans briefly yesterday, and we're not going to steal the thunder that we have for the next dispensation where this all comes to pass. But in a figure here, we see Elijah and these 7,000 are representative and emblematic of the remnant that exists today. So God has set Israel aside, but it's partial and it's temporary. Israel has set aside. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Israel has partial blindness. Yet in Israel, there are those who see. That is why we desire this broadcast to be to the Jew first. 
as the power of God, the word of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ as the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile because there is a remnant today after the election of grace who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, some of that remnant we have some amount of relationship with personally. I have even called me concerning this show. And so there is this remnant. And here's a picture of the remnant according to grace during the time of Elijah, upon which Romans 11 is written, these 7,000 who are going to put to flight Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. So they went out at noon, but Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the pavilions, he and his 32 kings that helped him. And the young men of the princes of the provinces went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out, and they told him, saying, There are men come out of Samaria. And he said, Whether they be come out for peace, take them alive, or whether they be come out for war, take them alive. He said, Just go out there and capture them. But everyone slew his man, and the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on the horse with a horseman. And the king of Israel went out and smote the horses and the chariots and slew the Syrians with a great slaughter. And so here now, Israel gets a great victory, but it's not a final victory. And the prophet comes to Ahab and says, these guys are going to come back in a year, so get ready for them. They're coming back. And the servants of the king of Syria, who are, of course, false, believe in, in religion. They're religious guys, and they're false. They say, look, Israel's got gods of the hills. Their gods are the gods of the hills. But if we can get them in lower in the plain, if we get them in a plain, then our gods are stronger than them. And so you see God now brings this, the Syrian army into the plain to be destroyed. And then they say, and your leaders are wrong. you got the wrong leaders, these 32 kings. Get rid of them and replace them with 32 military commanders. And so he does that. Ben-Hadad listens to that. And it came to pass at the return of the year, Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians, and he went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. So now he's coming down in a plain around the Sea of Galilee. And came to pass the return of the year that Ben-Hadad numbered the Syrians and went up to fight them. And he does that. And the children of Israel were numbered and all present and went against them. And the children of Israel pitched before them like two little flocks of kids. But the Syrians filled the country. And so, of course, the Lord had guaranteed victory. And so there is victory. After they camped seven days, on the seventh day, the children of Israel slew of the Syrians a hundred thousand footmen in one day. This is we're now in first Kings twenty verse twenty nine. And so Israel gets a victory. But Ben Hadad they don't kill. And Ben Hadad flees and comes into the city and hides, and his servants say to him, Behold, we have heard the kings of the house of Israel, merciful kings, put sackcloth well let's put sackcloth on, and maybe the king of Israel will save your life. And so now here came some messengers wearing sackcloth, and they come to the Ahab, and they said, Thy servant, Ben-Hadad, says, I pray thee, let me live. And here's what Ahab says. Is he alive? He is my brother. So here God gave victory to Ahab through the faithful men that he still had who were not, who had not joined the religion that really Ahab got rolling under Jezebel's tutelage. Uh, though she was a priestess of a start, the worship of Baal, 
is fine with her, but she'd rather have the sexual religion of the Asherah, which is the one that she still was doing and focused upon. And here now, this Ahab, who God had given the victory to anyway, and preserved him from losing everything he had, and preserved him from the great shame that Ben-Hadad intended to bring upon him, he calls this guy his brother because he's his fellow king. And this reminds me, this reminds me very great about how Christians oftentimes will associate professionally, let's just say, or will, will associate vocationally instead of spiritually. We'll be very careless in our associations. And the next thing you know, we're like Lot, who called the Sodomites his brothers. Or we're like Ahab, who calls Ben-Hadad his brother. When who are really his brothers? As the Lord Jesus Christ said, who is my mother and my brothers? They're they which do the will of my father. Do we associate on the basis of our walk of faith, or do we associate on the basis of what gains us in the world? Well, you judge yourself, but I'm not ignorant. I've been around a little while. I wouldn't say I've been around a long time, but I'm somebody's grandfather, and I've been around long enough to know that Christians oftentimes, just like Ahab did here, associate on the basis of their worldly ambition, and that can actually dictate their association. And so what happens here? Ben-Hadad gives Ahab some promise, and he says, Listen, I'll make you some cities. I'll make streets. The cities which my father took from your father, I'll give them back to you. And I'm going to make some streets, and I'll even name them after you. He says, And we'll make streets for thee in Damascus, as my father made in Samaria. Then said Ahab, I will send thee away with this covenant. So he made a covenant with him and sent him away. Now that's a horrible thing. He made a covenant with the enemy of God. He made a covenant with the one that God delivered him from. And that is so much of a compromise, and it is so much the way that we do things. So the Lord now sends a certain man, one of the sons of the prophets, to Ahab. Essentially, he tells him this. He says, you spared this man. You spared this man, and you have decided your own judgment. This is in 1 Kings 20 and the verse 40 and, so, and following. And he said unto him in verse 42, Thus saith the Lord, Because thou hast let go of thy, out of thy hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased and came to Samaria. Now, this is the judgment that God gives. And we're reminded, of course, of Saul, aren't we? I mean, when we think of Ahab here, we're reminded of Saul, of Ki the son of Kish, who spared Agag. And what happened? Well, he spared Agag, and finally he fell in a battle with the Agagites, and an Agagite was the last thing he saw and slew him. And so here is Ahab failing to, according to the word of the Lord, failing to take out the Syrians. And who's going to come back and bring him into captivity? But it's going to be the Syrians. Now the Lord will spare this happening to Ahab in his own day. 
but because he humbles himself. But the Lord says, I'll not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring the evil upon his house. And this Ahab just goes from this unbelief into even greater wickedness. Well, we'll take this up in just a minute, but in the meantime, can you listen to this brief announcement? Well, we don't have too many more interactions between Elijah and Ahab, but after this prophet, this one of the sons of the prophets, tells Ahab about the judgment that God's going to bring, and he goes down to his home, very unhappy and very sore. He goes to Samaria. He begins to forget all about it, really, and that's what we do. We get a warning from the Lord, and then we forget about it. We just put it out of our mind, and we decide to live with it, and we don't react to it where he could have really turned to the Lord and and sought him out and been after David, a man after God's own heart, because God is swift, he's slow to judge, but he's swift to bring mercy. So it says, It came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard that was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab the king of Samaria. So here's a piece of land attaching next to Ahab. And Ahab is like the Texan that says, I don't want to own all of Texas. I just want the land that attaches to mine. He goes to Naboth. He says, give me your vineyard. I'd like to have your vineyard. He's coveting Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth says, no, I'm not going to give you my vineyard. That's my inheritance. And the Lord forbid that I would give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. It goes to my sons. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased. Now he came just like when he heard the word of the Lord that he was going to give his life in place of Ben-Hadad's for sparing him. Now he's heavy and displeased because this guy told him he can't have his vineyard. But there's a difference. He got heavy and displeased from the word of the prophet. He didn't do anything about it. He gets heavy and displeased by the word of Naboth denying him something that his heart desires in the world. And he is going to do something about that. And he lays down on his bed, and he turns away his face, and he makes himself sick. He won't eat. He's all bothered because he can't have that land. And who comes along? But Jezebel's wife says, well, why are you going without eating? And he said, because I talked Naboth, the Jezreelite. And I said, give me, I want to buy your vineyard. And he said, no. And Jezebel, his wife, said what wives say to men. I won't say all wives say this to all men, but let me tell you about the worst thing you can have is an ambitious, greedy wife. That's about the worst thing you can have in life, an ambitious and greedy wife. If you've got an ambitious and greedy wife, you need to deal with her, not let her loose on the rest of us, okay? But when, young man, let me tell you something. When you're looking at a woman and you're attracted because of certain things about her, if she's lazy, greedy, or ambitious, you got yourself a real bad deal coming. And listen to the voice of your mother and your father. They'll see that before you do. Because a very unseemly thing, a very unseemly thing. And people accuse me, of course, it's a false accusation, because I make observations out of the Scripture about men and women. Especially I'll be accused of having something against women, which, of course, I don't have anything against women. The Bible talks about men and women differently because they have different aspects and attributes about them. For example, in the Bible, 
we see men being cowards all the time. But you don't see women being cowards all the time in the Bible. And why is that? Because men are more likely to be cowards than women. And we see men being faithless, extremely disloyal. Guys like Joab and so forth, we see them very disloyal. But we don't see women disloyal much in the Bible. Why is that? Because women tend to be very loyal. That's an aspect of their character, of the character of women, that outshines men. When you look at the ministry of the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's supplying his needs while the apostles are busy wondering where they're going to get food? Well, it's the women. When the apostles all run away from him, and not one of them, save John, even sees his crucifixion from nearby, who's at the foot of the cross? Well, it's the women are there. They're there because they're loyal. My mother just won't give up on me. And your mother won't give up on you either. Years after your father's given up on you for being a lousy, good-for-nothing bum, your mother still defends you. Now, that's a mother. That's that loyalty. So women have certain strengths that we see displayed. And how do I see these? You don't see these just make it up, look out there. But we look at the Scripture. We see these things in the Scripture. We look out in the world, and it's every whit true. You know, the Bible is so true in so many ways. There's thousands millions of evidences about it. It tells the truth about men and women. But now, with those characteristics of a woman, hardworking is a marvelous characteristic of a woman. You see a hardworking woman, uh, you know, she looks better. A hardworking woman just looks better and better every day. Every day. A hardworking woman. Oh, she might not look the best when she's 17 years old, but you know what? 30 years later, she's still a hardworking woman. She's looking pretty good. A lazy woman might look good when she's 17 or 18. By the time she's 25, you know, she's disgusting. And the same thing with an ambitious woman. The man who marries an ambitious and greedy woman will never have peace. He'll be contended constantly, and uh, maybe he'll have great worldly success because she pushes him into it. He's going to have to squirrel away some of that money so he can build a porch so he can live somewhere in peace. Now, in Israel, they built the porches on the top of the house. That's why it's called a corner of the roof. But many men just give themselves a little corner in the garage. So, there's some stuff for you. So Jezebel says, look, you're the king of Israel, Ahab. You're, look, you're the biggest man. You're the biggest and baddest man in Israel, and you don't know how to just... Get take this land from him. Don't don't you worry about it, honey. I'll arrange it. I'll take care of you. And so now here she mothers his little need. This is how she manipulates him because he won't be a man. Because he won't be a man to her. She'll get her way. And what does she do? She wrote letters in Ahab's name. What a usurper! What a usurper! She writes letters in Ahab's name. Takes his stamp. Sticks his name on it. Seals them with his seal sent the letters unto the elders of the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. So first get everybody hungry. And then set Naboth on high among the people. Naboth in some conspicuous place. And then she set two men, the sons of Belial, before him to bear false witness against him saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. 
And the men of his city, even the elders of, and the nobles who were in the inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them. And as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them, they proclaimed a fast, set Naboth on high among the people. There came in two men, children of Belial. And does this remind us of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course it does. They suborned men. They brought in false witnesses, but their witness didn't agree. Well, these people don't care. They come in. They say Naboth blasphemed God and the king. They obviously didn't cross-examine them because this story cannot hold. Do you know false stories cannot really stand up to inspection as if true? So what happens when people put out false stories? Well, they become, usually a false story is vague, and they make sure it's not subject to proper cross-examination. So it wasn't. And they took him out, and they stoned him to death, sent to Jezebel and said, okay, Naboth is dead. And what do you think Jezebel does? She goes to her husband. She goes, okay, Naboth's dead. Now he can't refuse to give you money. He's dead. Go take it. And, of course, he goes down to Jezreel and takes it. Now, that's what wicked religious people do. The Scripture says it. Wicked religious people steal the inheritance of widows. That's why God would have us to look after widows. And they need to be looked after because there's a wicked religious person ready to rip them off at every moment and steal the inheritance of widows. That does go on today, and it went on in that day. And so now Naboth's widow and his inheritors are going to be robbed by the king Ahab. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. You remember the Tishbite? He's a sojourner. You say, what's he doing? He's sojourning. Still a, an alien, still a stranger, still a pilgrim. Arise, go down, meet King Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. He's taken possession of the vineyard of Naboth. And you speak to him, thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, where they stone him to death, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. And so now Elijah comes to Ahab, and Ahab says to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And I want to remind you, this is the second name that Ahab has called Elijah. The first time he called him the troubler of Israel. The first thing he called him. And of course, Ahab, what he accused Elijah of being, he was. Because Ahab was the troubler of Israel. And by the way, this is how Israel goes into captivity, just like this. They reject the word of the Lord and the messenger of the Lord. And so now he calls, Ahab calls Elijah his enemy. And of course, Elijah has never been the enemy of Ahab. In fact, Elijah is Ahab's best friend. He's his best friend. And here's the difference between Ahab and David. When Nathan the prophet came to David and said, and really told him he was a murderer, David said, I have sinned, and, and Nathan said, and the Lord has put away your sin. But not, not Ahab. He says to Elijah, when, when the word of the Lord comes to him, he says, have you found me, my enemy? First thing, he, he, my enemy. And now the message comes to him, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I'll bring evil upon thee and will take away thy posterity and will cut off Ahab from all men. 
and him that is shut up and left in Israel, and I will make thine house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, you remember that, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the provocation wherewith thou hast provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. So here's now also going to be the terminus ad quem of Ahab, the end of the line. And if Jezebel also spoke the Lord, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. So here now, Jezebel is condemned to being eaten by dogs. I mean, this is the not only a hideous death, and the death of Jezebel is perhaps the most hideous description of death in the entire Scripture. And it, he says, Him that dies of Ahab in the city, the dogs will eat. Him that dies in the field, the fowls of the air will eat. There are those little birdies. For there was none like unto Ahab, which did him sell himself to do to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up, and he did very abominably in following idols according to all things, as did the Amorites, for whom whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. It came to pass when Ahab heard those words, he rent his clothes, put sackcloth upon his sackcloth upon his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went humbly, went about humbly. The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son days, son's days I will bring evil upon his house. Well, we have more to learn from Ahab and more to learn from his bad example. But one thing we can learn right here, we can learn that even a wicked guy like Ahab, the most wicked king there ever was in Israel, when he humbled himself before the Lord, the Lord suspended the judgment that he was going to bring upon him. Now, friend, God is quick in mercy, and he's slow to anger. And so take the advice of another wicked guy. Well, now Ahab goes forward, he gets his life, He's not. the Lord's not going to do these things during his life. He's going to cut off the house of Ahab in his son's lifetime, and we'll be seeing that. But uh, we're in 1 Kings 22, and it tells us that they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. So here, of course, uh, Israel had whooped up on Syria, but didn't take care of them totally. And so they go three years without any war, so there's three years of peace and prosperity. And this is something that most people can't withstand. They can withstand judgment, and they can come around during a time of judgment when God brings judgment into their life, but it's prosperity and peace that are the undoing of most people. And we could think about our own country, we can think about our own lives, but prosperity and peace are just hard to withstand People can take hostility, but what about prosperity and peace? So three years, there's no war between Syria and Israel. It tells us it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel, and boy, is that a down. Now, Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, decides to come down to the king of Israel. It's almost like going down to Egypt. Well, it, morally, it's worse than going down to Egypt. But he comes down to Egypt, and he makes a league. He makes a league with wicked King Ahab. Now, of course, Ahab is a pretender. The king of Israel knows that he's supposed to be uh, the king of all of Israel, and that this division into Israel and Judah is wrong. 
It always has been wrong. It always is wrong because there's only one king over Israel, and that's out of the tribe of Judah until that line ceases, and it ceased in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's only one king in Israel, and that's the one that was crucified, the king of the Jews. But here now, at this time, prior to that, Jehoshaphat is, and he should stay away from this guy, Ahab, but he doesn't, and it almost gets him killed. And immediately, Ahab, when he when Jehoshaphat comes down to him, uh, he, he says to him, Don't you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, and, and the Syrians have it? And he says unto Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me into the, to battle to Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. That's the league he makes. He makes a military league with wicked Ahab. But Jehoshaphat still has some moral sense left, and he says, let's see what the Lord wants. Inquire at the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, 400 men. Well, who are those guys? Who are these 400? These are the, of the 850 that he had before, these are the 400 false prophets of the Asherah that eat at Jezebel's table. And he calls them together, and here they are. And he says, Shall I go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I forbear? And they all say, Go up, the Lord will prosper you. The Lord will deliver you into the hand, into their hand. So here now there's the false prophets, and of course the false prophets always bring good news, always. False prophets always tell a guy what he wants to hear. So all 400 of these guys all tell him the same thing, but Jehoshaphat's not taken in. He says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord besides these guys that we might just ask one? Isn't there one prophet of God that we can talk to instead of these 400 bozos? And my friend, aren't you tired of listening to the bozos? Don't you want to hear from the Lord sometime? And, of course, this is what bad leaders do. They surround themselves with bad advisors, and then they all agree with them. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, There is one man yet, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the Lord. But I hate this guy because he always prophesies evil and not good to me. So this is a religious guy trying to arrange his little prophecies. He doesn't like this one guy, Micaiah, the son of Imla, because he never tells him what he wants to hear. Well, we're going to take that up next time, but let me tell you something. If you got itching ears, if you are busy looking for the, the message you want to hear, that's a wicked thing. Uh, God will tell you what you need to hear, and he'll send you his word to do it. And there aren't any prophets today, but there's still the word of God. It's fully written today. It wasn't during the time of the prophets. There are teachers today. And we trust that we're giving you the whole counsel of God as we proclaim it. Well, may God bless you, and we'll, uh, by the grace of God, we'll talk to you again 